0: Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we continue our series, Satan's Favorite Lies. Our special guest this week is Gil Stiglitz, who presents for us the most powerful message the enemy tries to spread, and that is, you can't trust the Bible. Gil reminds us that as Satan convinces us to read some other instructional manual, we'll keep coming up with wrong decisions about life. Listen as Gil gives us four major reasons to help us prove that the Bible is God's Word and the impact those reasons can have in our lives. Great
1: job, great job. My name is Gil Stiglitz, and uh, I am happy to be here at this church. I have grown up in this church, although it wasn't here at uh, Circuit City back when I was growing up. Uh, I am encouraged to be here. David asked me to talk about one of the most powerful lies that the enemy tries to spread in the church, and that is that you can't trust the Bible. Now, let me just say, this is going to be like a seminary lecture, so you kind of have to put your head thinking space on and write notes and that kind of stuff because we're going to kind of go after it and uh, and look at this whole arena. So let's first take a look at some of the uh, smashes that uh, have come against the Bible. You know, U.S. News and World Report a number of years ago said other scholars have concluded that the Bible is the product of a purely human endeavor and that the identity of the authors is lost forever. And that their work has been largely obliterated by the centuries of translations and editing. Then Steve Allen, a uh, TV personality and comedian from a number of generations ago, a number of years ago, he said, as he wrote a book, Steve Allen charges that the Bible is full of errors, contradictions, and inconsistencies. He describes the scriptures as being inadequate, narrow, vindictive, absurd, illogical, and stupid. And uh, pretty strong, pretty strong words. That's on page 420. Big book about how he hates the Bible. Then uh, Time Magazine uh, somewhat recently came out with this article in 2015. And he said, they said, almost, about 400 years have passed between the writing of the first Christian manuscripts and their compilation into the New Testament. That's the same amount of time between the arrival of the pilgrims on the Mayflower and today. And so a lot of smashing of the Bible. That's really not true, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But that's what Time Magazine said. Now, the Bible itself claims to be a God-breathed book that has life and power in itself, even through its translations. Second Timothy 3.16, I just thought we'd, if you have your Bible, you can open to that one. I just, you look up everything on my phone. So if you have your phone, feel free to, to jump into that. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And then Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, the Bible claims to be this amazing book. Now, the question we have to ask is, why is this such a big thing that Satan is trying everybody to get to believe this? You know, you can't trust the Bible. The key idea is it's radically important that we understand how reliable the Bible is because all of us have a soundtrack playing in our minds. We have an instruction manual that kind of says, this is how you make decisions on relationships. This is how you make decisions on money. This is how you make decisions on, in marriage and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. Now, if we have the wrong instruction manual helping us, we come out with the wrong decisions. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you have ever made a bad decision with money? Okay. How many of you have ever made a bad decision with relationships? Okay, good. How many have ever made a bad decision in terms of, just in marriage, maybe you said something when you, you inside you said, maybe I shouldn't talk. Yeah, most of the guys should raise their hands. Yes. Um, yeah, and some of us are doing this. Okay. And there, there is this, this thing that we let, let something inform our thinking that we shouldn't. Now, these three uh, kinds of soundtracks are culture, tradition, and proven wisdom. The culture is the commercials, the books, the movies, the, uh, the songs that we listen to. A few years ago, when Frank Sinatra died, many, many people said his song, My Way, is the soundtrack of my life. That's really scary. I, have you ever been through a thing where you watched a movie and you were so inspired by the movie that you actually went and did something that the movie did and you realized that was dumb, but you did it anyway? And that's the whole culture saying, here's how you live your life. I remember my daughter, one of my daughters, the youngest one, as she was growing up, we were getting ready to make a decision. And I said, what kind of a decision would you make? And, and she said, I know, Daddy, I know. And, I, and she said, what? Follow your heart. And I said, no, that's a bad idea. Follow your head and the Bible. She said, really? That's not what they tell me on TV. And what you have is you have this cultural thing informing us. You can also have tradition where you just go back. What did they do in the past? What did my parents tell me to do? Is that always the right thing? No. No. No, it's not always the right thing. And then there's proven wisdom. In my humble but accurate opinion, the Bible is proven wisdom. In other words, when it informs you, when it begins to say, here's how you should interact in your marriage, here's how you should handle your finances, here's how you should work with friends, here's how you should put your life together, it helps us significantly. Now, what I want to do is prove to you why you can trust the Bible. This is the part that's going to get a little bit heady. So some of you are going to love it and the others of you are going to go, how long is this going to go on? But it's a little bit more of a seminary class, so we're excited about it. Some of you are thrilled with it, and some of you are like, okay, I think I can make it through. So let's jump through and really ask this question, how do we prove that the Bible is God's Word? How do we prove? There's four large ways. There's a whole bunch of this. There's just so much material, I had to scoosh it down and only have 41 slides today. So... Um, There's just so much to prove it. Now, there's four major themes that we want to work with. And the first one is fulfilled prophecy. One of the most exciting things about the Bible is the Bible is full of predictions that this would happen sometime in the future. And it's just amazing. They all happened. In fact, is the Bible true? True. Unquestionably, the single greatest evidence leading to the veracity of the Bible's claims for divine inspiration is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The Bible purports to contain more than a thousand inspired prophecies. The vast majority of these prophecies have already come to pass and can be verified by secular history. In fact, it's absolutely amazing. I wanted to give you ten examples, but I can only give you two. So, Consider, for example, Ezekiel's prophecy concerning God's judgment against the Phoenician capital of Tyre. I remember when I was about 17, 18 years of age and had just become a Christian going to this church and I thought, boy, a whole lot of this is based upon the Bible. What if you can't trust the Bible? And I went to the library of this church and I pulled a little book off the shelf that said, can you trust the Bible? And one of the first things it shared was this prophecy. There is a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 26, that says that the city of Tyre, which was a big, prosperous city, kind of like Las Vegas. It was kind of a Las Vegas on the coast. There's a very big thing. And it said a certain king, Nebuchadnezzar, would come and destroy it. And then all of the rubble from the city would be thrown into the sea. And the city would not be rebuilt, but would be a place for fishermen to spread their nets. And that's just not done in that day where, where you have a city next to a spring. They're always rebuilt and the ruins are never thrown into the sea. So Nebuchadnezzar, sure enough, he came a number of years later and destroyed the city. And so first part of the prophecy fulfilled. Interestingly enough, people say, oh, well, what about the what about the second part? 300 years later, Alexander the Great came. And the people of the ruined city of Tyre realized we can't hold off this great general. So they slipped out in the middle of the night on boats across the channel to a little island off the coast. And then they kind of went, ha-ha, you you don't have any boats, you can't get us, nanny, nanny, nanny. And they were feeling like, hey, we're safe. Alexander the Great was so upset, even though he didn't have any boats, what he did was he took the ruins of the old city and had his soldiers throw them into the sea and build a bridge all the way to the island so he could wipe them all out. And the prophecy came totally true. And then what was interesting was they didn't rebuild the city where it had been because there were no ruins there anymore. They left that where fishermen could spread their nets. It's just absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, let's go on. There are at least 44 messianic prophecies uh, that are fulfilled by Christ. Things like where he would be born, that he would be the descendant of David, that he would be called Emmanuel. That he would spend a season in Egypt, that there would be a massacre at the place where he was born, that he would be rejected by his own people, and he would bring light to Galilee, and he would be betrayed, and it goes on and on and on. 44 separate prophecies that were spoken anywhere from 600 years to 400 years before Jesus came, and he fulfilled them all. Now, that's not impressive to you, but let me tell you what the statisticians have told us. The fact that one person would fulfill that many prophecies, the odds of that happening are like if you took silver dollars and covered the state of Texas two feet thick and painted one silver dollar red. You blindfolded a man or woman and said, walk across the state and pick up one silver dollar. That's the odds that all of that would happen to one person. That was predicted 600 and even sometimes 800 years before Christ came. Isn't that amazing? A few of you are still awake. Okay. You got your thinking caps on. I realize you're kind of going internal. Okay. Now let's go on. The second major way that we prove that the Bible is the word of God is the supernatural creation of the Bible. Now, It's just absolutely amazing how the Bible came together. It should not work the way it came together. Let's take a look at some statistics. The Bible is 66 books written over 1,500 years, over 40 generations, with 40 different authors, some of them from all different kinds of walks of life, kings and peasants and philosophers and poets and fishermen and statesmen. They were in different places at different times, in different moods. Some of them were very melancholy, like uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Ooh, ooh. Some of them were very up. I love Amos. Amos is one of my... He, he says, I'm not a prophet, really. I'm just the, I'm just the son of a fig picker. And uh, I just tend sheeps and I pick figs and I got something to say to the king. And, and what's fascinating about this... All of those things should not have come together to make one book that doesn't disagree with itself. It's this amazing thing that's written over centuries. And why does it work together? Because God spoke to each of those folks. And God wove it together. It's absolutely supernatural that it came together and that we can trust it. Now, let's go on. The Bible's origin... A primary attack against the divine biblical origin is that the books of the New Testament were agreed upon, or these are the New Testament books, hundreds of years after they were written. And so some people say, oh, see, that's evidence that something fishy's going on in there. Something's not right. Now, let me help you understand why. The early church fathers actually tell us that the books of the New Testament, we're almost immediately recognized something's different about these these are new testament books in fact we have in second peter chapter 3 verse 16 the apostle peter takes for granted that paul's letters were already considered inspired scriptures on the same level as the old testament in first timothy chapter 5:18 the apostle paul puts an old testament scripture together with a new testament scripture and says it's all scripture it's very, very interesting. And so it's almost immediate. There's no gap there. Now, what you have to understand is why did certain men, about 250 to 300 years after the books were written, say, these are the New Testament books? The reason was largely persecution. In around 280 to 314, there was a huge persecution, the worst Roman persecution. And if you were a Roman citizen or anyone in Rome and you had a book of the Bible, you could be killed for it. And so the Christians basically said, Pastor, we need to know which books we should die for because I'm not dying for, you know, the latest, greatest romance novels, but I am willing to die for the Bible. And so you had Christians who were being thrown into the lion's dens and into the Colosseum to be killed because they own parts of the Bible and they wouldn't give them up. And they wanted to know which books are the real books. And so you had the, all the pastors got together and they said, these are the real books. Those are just interesting stories. And that's why it was called canonized around 280 to 325 uh, AD. So you with me here? Okay, still with me. Good. Okay. Interestingly enough, Time Magazine gave us another article a little bit later. I thought they should have had this one at the beginning. And it they said, now, reputable scholars now believe that the New Testament account is reliable history. Well, golly. I could have told you that a long time ago. But now they're willing to listen to the scholars that we listen to. Now, then, let's talk about the third way we can prove or we know that the Bible is god's word the first one was fulfilled prophecy the second was supernatural creation the third one supernatural publication and preservation god has went out of his way to preserve the scriptures we would expect that if god had inspired the scriptures he'd do some things to protect it right to make sure we got it right right okay a few of you are still with me okay i just just have to do that okay now Certainly, the Bible is a remarkable book. Unquestionably, the world's all-time bestseller, countless millions of copies are in print. Every single month, the Bible is the best-selling book in the world. It sells so many, it's no longer listed on the New York Times or any other bestseller list. In fact, understand, a best-selling book sells, on the New York Times bestseller list, 10,000 copies in a month. The Bible sells... In 1999, I listed it up there, it sold 627 million copies in one year. It, it's such a huge seller, nobody wants to have it listed first every month, week after week, day after day. It's always winning. So they've just eliminated it. It's just, it's huge. Now, let's go on. Supernatural Preservation. Another challenge against the origin of the Bible is the reliability of the manuscripts. How do we know we really have the same Bible that they were reading at the beginning from which today's Bibles are translated? Remarkably, there is a widespread evidence for absolute reliability. There are more than 14,000 existing Old Testament manuscripts and fragments copied throughout the Middle East, Mediterranean, and European regions that agree dramatically with each other. In addition, these texts agree with the Septuagint, version of the Old Testament, which was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek 300 years before the time of Christ. It's it's absolutely amazing how much evidence we have that we have the same Bible that was originally written. In fact, this next slide shows you a picture of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the 1940s and 50s, a shepherd was walking through a certain part of Palestine on the backside of the Dead Sea, and he threw a rock into a cave looking for one of his sheep and he heard a pot break. He said, whoa, that's weird. And he went in there, and what he discovered was that about 200 years before Christ, all the way to about 100 years after Christ, they had buried texts of the Old Testament in those caves in jars. And they were able to compare the Bible we have and the Bible that was used before Christ... And a little bit after Christ. And they're the same. Do you know why? Let me just tell you why. The Hebrew scholars and scribes were amazing. They wanted to make sure the Bible was so accurate that when you wrote a page or a chapter of a book, and sometimes a chapter would take like a year because you would go this letter, this letter, this letter, this letter, and they wrote you know, from uh, right to left. They would count the number of letters in the whole book And if your book didn't have exactly the same number of letters, it was thrown away. Then they would count the number. They had the number of letters. Then they would say, we know that this letter is the middle letter of this page and the middle letter of this book. And if they counted and found that your book, your copy didn't have that same letter in the middle, no matter how long you had been working on it, a year, two years, it was thrown away and you started over again. They did that for hundreds of years. That's why we know we have the same Bible. Think about that from the point of view. Would you like that to be your whole job? Aren't you glad they did it? But now we're excited about Xerox. Anyway, um, now let's jump in a little bit further. Supernatural publication and preservation. Let's talk about the New Testament here as we go forward. The Bible was was completed in its entirety nearly 2,000 years ago and stands today as the best preserved literary work of all antiquity with over 24,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered so far. 24,000 copies that come back from the earliest times. If you compare that with another ancient book that we, many people, oh, that's great. In fact, the book, the Iliad, was considered by many Greeks almost to be their Bible. They only have 643 manuscripts of that book. That was authored in about 600 uh, B.C., We have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. We know we have the New Testament. It's it's what it is. Now, let's go on. Let's take a look at a different way of saying, do we make sure we have the Bible? Clement of Rome, who was one of the people discipled by the Apostle John in about uh, 60s, 70s A.D., right after Christ rose from the dead, he wrote a number of books. He was killed in 100 A.D., In his writings, he quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, Hebrews, and Titus. Clement quotes totally correspond with the Bible that we read today. In fact, this is amazing. If we lost all of the Greek manuscripts, all of the Latin manuscripts, and all 9,300 of the other ancient manuscripts, we would be able to reconstruct all but 11 verses of the New Testament just from the writings and quotes from the early church fathers. It's like, it's amazing. It's just amazing. So that's why in the bottom thing, I, in a nutshell, the Bible stands today as the best preserved literary work of all antiquity and its overall reliability is without question. Let's go on. Supernatural impact. It's not enough. It's not enough that it just is amazing and it has creation and it's fulfilled prophecy. It's One of the most amazing things about the Bible is anyone who reads it seriously, who reads it like, I'd like to see if this thing really has, it changes them. It does something. You can sense it. Let me talk to you about some famous people. First, Napoleon Bonaparte. Not necessarily a Christian, but interesting guy. The gospel, he said, is not a book. It is a living being with an action and a power which invades every other thing that opposes its extension. Behold, it is upon this table. This book surpasses all others. I never omit to read it and every day with some pleasure. That's pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. Now, then go on. Sir Isaac Newton, kind of inventor or discoverer of gravity. I don't know that it was because of the apple and that whole thing. It was something else. But he said, we account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of the authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. Then George Washington, founder of this country, said it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Immanuel Kant, one of the most brilliant philosophers in history, wrote the stunning book called The Critique of Pure Reason, said this, I believe that the existence of the Bible is the greatest benefit to the human race. Any attempt to belittle it, I believe, is a crime against humanity. And then Abraham Lincoln said, I am busily engaged in the study of the Bible. I believe it is God's word because it finds me where I am. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good of the Savior of the world is communicated to us through the book. Pretty impressive. Now, it doesn't do us any good... If you go, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. A little boring, but uh, fascinating. Glad you said that. Everybody else really needed that. But if we don't do anything with it, we've got to do something with it. So we've got to take an action step. If it is true, and it is, that the Bible can be trusted and it has God's life in it, then I need to do what? Starts with an R, ends with a D. Read it. Read it. Yes. (laughs) Now, for... Thousands of years, the ancient Jews and the Christians have read the Bible in a particular way. Those who couldn't read. And it's often called divine reading. They believe and they understand that God breathed his life into this book. And so when they read it, his life comes back and and speaks to them. Now, let me tell you how to do this. Because I so much want the life of God to flow into you and to hear. Have you hear him? So here's what you do. Divine reading, you open the Bible. Now, I just have it on my phone. So every night, about 9 o'clock, 9.30, I go sit in my favorite chair, and I turn my phone on, and I open my Bible. And I usually start in the book of Philippians or James or Proverbs or Psalms. And then what I do is I look at my schedule for the next day. And I go, oh, I have a meeting with so-and-so. And then I have to have a meeting with this idiot the next day. Oh, and then, oh, what about that? I'm going to, oh, what do I do, Lord? I've got to talk with these people. And so that I have that in mind as I prayerfully read through that proverb. Last night I was reading through Psalm 37. It goes, you know, don't fret yourself when wrongdoers look like they're getting ahead and people are cutting you off on the freeway. And that's kind of my translation. And, and, and other people look like, you know, and it says just... Trust in the Lord and do good. And I'm reading down slowly. And then what almost always happens is God just kind of reaches a verse out and goes, (laughs) this verse you need to pay attention to. And I don't know why, because some verse, wow, why is that verse standing out? And you know, it's not like it's projected. What's amazing is, is that God's word, even in my phone, on the pages of your Bible, it can begin to say, you need to pay attention to this. That's what I want to then start listening to, interacting with, start talking with God about it. And the idea is, God, what do you mean by that? Last night, this verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What do you mean by that, Lord? Well, how do I do that? Let's talk about this. How do I do that? And so we had this whole conversation. Now, what's interesting is I try and memorize the verse so that I say it as I go to sleep at night. And I'm just fascinated by the conversations that go on in my head. I was like, oh Lord, what about this? What about that? And then I have the privilege of getting up a few times in the night because my bladder decides it's time for me to meditate more. And, and so when I try and go back to sleep, then I say it some more. And what's fascinating is, is that God and I have this discussion all night, and then he guides me. He says, this is the kind of decision you need to make based upon that verse. And I'm amazed... At how much I needed that information. What I find. Is that I have areas of my life. That if I'm left to myself. I will always make a stupid decision. I'll always say yes to this. When I should say no. Or wait. Or I'll always say no to that. When I should say yes. Do you guys have that? Or is that just me? Yeah. I I just talked to a guy. Who consistently takes the wrong jobs. Consistently, even though his friends were friends. Don't take that job. And he does it anyway. And then he says, I probably shouldn't have taken that job. And so I'm trying to get him into the Bible so that the Bible can say, don't take that job. I consistently find that some people make irrational financial decisions. That sometimes, have you ever, have you ever even said to yourself or to other people, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's your own body saying, shut up. (laughs) But you say it anyway, right? What I find is when I listen to the Bible, the Bible the night before will say, you're probably going to say too much. Get ready. Get ready. Who am I going to say too much to? Who am I going to say too much to? I am so thrilled that God is alive. And that God can speak to me through the Scriptures, and it's just this passage. The other, a couple months ago, I was reading this passage, and it said, "Be humble and don't be wise in your own eyes." And I thought, "What does it have to do with tomorrow?" And I said where I was going, and we were talking about it. And I thought, so I said to this group, I was talking to this group. I said, "Somebody here's probably got wisdom for me that I need," and it was fascinating because it was the last person I would ever expect. This lady who I'd never met before. Kind of almost crazy. I think I'm the one who's supposed to tell you. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And she said some amazing things. And I would have totally blown her off. If not for that verse that said, pay attention. Somebody's going to help you. God knows the future. He knows your future. And he wants to guide you through the scriptures so that when you're raising your kids, when you're hanging on to your marriage, when you're trying to make your finances work, you have more than just your wisdom. That's why you read the Bible every day. Now, ask God to move you forward in the direction of the truths in the passage. Start with Proverbs, start with Psalms, like today's the seventh, so I always read the seventh proverb the day before in the seventh psalm and you know that kind of thing and then i'll read philippians that kind of thing now how many of you are willing to try this this week okay good good the rest of you no blessings <laughs> even if you didn't raise your hand do it anyway just open your get an app you version is free open a bible start reading and let you'll just be surprised why am i paying attention to this verse and what does God want me to know? Now, let's tell God that we're willing to listen to him if we are. Heavenly Father, we come in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would open up your word. We have seen the evidence that it is real, that it is strong, that it is trustworthy. And we realize what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to make us pay attention to a commercial or a decision from the past that's no good anymore. And we need to be getting the straight stuff from you. Help us to see from the Bible, to listen to your word. We need you. Change us this next week. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Bronte, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.